The work we do just as journalists, like on some level, is exploitive. And that's why then we have an ethical standard to not just be trying to entertain people. That is to me horrific because there has to be an actual meaningful reason why I'm doing it. Hello, and welcome to our second summer episode of On Assignment, where even though most of our students are gone and enjoying their summers, we are still here in the building, bringing you conversations with award-winning journalists. I'm Abby Wright, and I run the prizes department here at the J School, joined as always by my colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. And since most of these great conversations involve our current DuPont winners, this is as good a time as any, always a good time, to remind everyone that the deadline for, is fast approaching to enter for the 2020 DuPont Awards. I cannot believe that 2020 is hurtling towards us. But yes, that's right. The deadline for the 2020 DuPonts is July 1st. Just go to www.dupont.org for information and for links to enter your best audio and video reporting from the past year. And by year, I mean the eligibility period is from July of this past year, 2018, to June of this year, 2019. And if you're confused by all that, don't be. It it's, can be feel a little complicated, but just go to DuPont.org for the full 411, as the kids say. And if you have any questions beyond that, you'll find our contacts to reach out to us directly. So today we're showcasing another one of our current DuPont winners, the folks from WNYC's Caught, which is a hard-hitting yet deeply intimate nine-episode podcast series that immerses listeners in the world of juvenile justice in New York City. It's a world unto itself, really. And in fact, it's often described more like a spider web. It's a system that ensnares young people and then just changes them forever and usually not in a good way. We were lucky enough to have the host of the series caught, Kai Wright, who is also now hosting another podcast that you should check out in addition to Caught. Uh, it's called The Stakes, and it's about social change in general. And he was joined by Caught's senior producer, Kari Pitkin, who also executive produces Radio Rookies, which if you didn't know about them, you should check them out as well. Uh, Radio Rookies works with kids to have them tell their own stories, and it also contributes to The Stakes. They came up to the J School last month to talk to students and to talk with our own Sally Herships, who runs our audio program here at the J School and is a journalist in her own right. This is an edited conversation from that day back in May. She started the session by playing a clip from Caught. It's one that ran at the DuPont ceremony in January, and it features a young man they call Z, who's been caught up in the system many times, uh, starting as young as sixth grade. And at age 15, he was sentenced for armed robbery as an adult. And he spends most of his time in the series at a halfway house, trying to keep his anger and his emotions intact. Many of the staff have been incarcerated themselves, like Miss Perkins. You know, I'm here because I need you to see people that's like me. She was never scared of Z. I like your brain. I think that you're real smart. You just need to get your anger together. You know what I mean? I've never seen you angry, though. <laughs> so how do you do that? I'm a quiet person. But after seeing and being in so many different types of facilities, I done did everything in the book. Getting restrained 15 times in one day, I did that. Fighting, all that, turning up. So I don't want to go through that type of stuff no more. I got a question about that. I personally have never had to administer a restraint. 
how does that affect you after going through that all day? After you get restrained 15 times, how that make you feel? For me, I don't know. It don't really make me feel bad at all. It's like a quick adrenaline rush. Yeah, it sounds crazy, but I get I get a relief. Like imagine having months and months of trapped up anger and stuff never being expressed in your system without getting it out. How would that make you feel? So in the series Caught, we hear um, from kids like this. This was Z, right? Um, the tape is gripping, it's touching. The series was incredibly extensive, both in geography, topic, and spanned decades. How did the idea for this series come about? We've always been interested in the idea of reporting or working with young people who are in detention in some capacity. And there are also a lot of logistical barriers to that, as you can imagine. Um, our, typically, a young person we work with will work with us for a minimum of 100 hours, I would say. And that's just not very realistic if you want to get inside of a facility. But we learned about this initiative in New York because there's, you know, there's a movement to close down Rikers and to get young people out of Rikers. And as a part of that movement, uh, New York opened this close to home facilities, which the idea being that it was kind of a in communities and in more of a like a residential setting, and they were being run by nonprofits. And so initially we were thinking of this as a very traditional Radio Rookies workshop where we would go in and then some young people would produce stories and we would have these one-off stories. What ended up happening is that these were really new facilities and um, at a few other facilities, not the one where we were, some, a lot of kids were going AWOL and there started to be a lot of bad press about um, these close to home facilities. And um, so we got kicked out, not because of what anything <laughs> we were doing, but they just said, we can't have a, you know, we know you're WNYC, you can't be in here. And they just shut it down, you know, just bam, gone. No chance to say goodbye to the young people, nothing. We had invested a lot of time and we had developed a, Courtney had developed a relationship not only with Z, who ended up being a central character, but um, also his mother. And then we became a part of this narrative unit at WNYC and suddenly it was like, maybe there's something much bigger here. Maybe there's an opportunity to tell a lot of different stories. There's been a big conversation happening about mass incarceration. Less of it has been about the juvenile justice system. And so we went through a process of pitching it to WNYC as a larger podcast. I have to admit, when I started listening, I didn't start at the beginning. I dove in, and one of the first pieces that I listened to is about a kid named Honor. And it was a really difficult story, and I had to stop a couple of times and then take a little break and listen again. And Honor, in case you haven't heard it, is involved in a pretty violent crime. And one of the things I was curious about is, how do you, as a reporter, balance uh, the fact that these sources are kids, but they've also been involved in potentially brutal or violent crimes? How do you both protect them as kids and as sources, but also trust them? I mean, that story in particular, we spent a lot of time uh, going back and forth on what what is the best way to handle it. And not just journalistically, but also just a lot of, we had a lot of dispute amongst us about what we thought of Otter's story. 
So part of the story is that in, in the course of a domestic dispute, Honor does very serious violence to his sister. Um, and, um, uh, and so Sarah spent an enormous amount of time trying to make sure that we had his sister in the story, um, and she ultimately did not want to be in the story, um, but we were able to represent her point of view in it. Um, so it, it, not easily is the answer, you know? I mean, we just, we, we really hashed it out, um, but we did all of that hashing rooted in very traditional journalism. You know, I mean, all of the storytellers, all the reporters on this series are veteran newsroom reporters. Um, and, you know, so Sarah Gonzalez, who reported that piece, has been, reporting difficult stories of all sorts uh, for a long time. Uh, and so she didn't assert any facts that she could not independently verify. I mean, you know, she was in conversation with the lawyers. She was at court often. She was looking at the court records. So that on that end of it, it's, it's just traditional reporting. You don't say things you don't know. And you mentioned, you used the word sympathy or sympathetic, and that was another question I had because the series does feel, it, it's meant to be sympathetic to kids. It wasn't so much about being sympathetic to them as much as it was about this is a valid perspective on this problem that we do not hear from. There has been this conversation about criminal justice reform. It's been building. And so often the moment of violence when a young black person comes into contact with law enforcement. Um, and we start the story at that moment of violence. Um, and it's usually where there's a dead black person, frankly. and there's all of this stuff that predates that moment and all of these points of contact that we don't talk about that, that are equally violent. And so a goal of one of the series was to, sh to be in that space, sympathy or not. And secondly, in, to do that in a way that allowed us to see it from the perspective of the person encountering the system. And so, so much of our criminal justice conversation, everybody gets a seat at the table of the conversation other than the people that we've labeled criminals. And maybe a good example of that would be the story of, was it Willie? The, the, so this is a, a kid who perpetrated some pretty violent crimes on the, on the subway. And one of the moments when you're describing him that's stuck in my head, I don't want to misquote it, but was I think a, a, scared, a scared kid, right, who needed help? Kari reported this story and she can talk about it, but there, yeah. this is a particular case. Like Kari and I have never come to like the same opinion necessarily about Willie Basket. Like, well, so just for background, Willie, um, this is a case in the 70s. He murdered two people on the subway in New York and it became sort of a, a, a turning point in juvenile justice because then there was this sense of how can you treat this young man? I think he had just turned 15 as a juvenile when he committed this heinous crime and it was a heinous crime, um, but the entire juvenile justice system had on paper, maybe not in practice, there had been an idea that young people are, you know, we should think of this as a system of reform and people are redeemable and they are at their core, this is, you know, not punishment, but actual, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna help people. And this was kind of a turning point in the thinking around that, but um, Willie was a very complicated character, for sure, and, and, and probably a psychopath, and he also did need help. That's the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that I learned in all of this, honestly, is that what really so many of these stories are actually about is mental health issues. And Willie is just a really stark example of it, you know, and it's because his mental health issues were profound and led to profound violence, you know. Um, 
but they're on a spectrum with what was in almost every story um, where there was a young person who had mental health problems and needed support and care and the difference between that person and someone who has more privilege in their life uh, who might be able to find a way to get that care um, was that they got that care only once they encountered the criminal justice system. Um, and um, and that's, a, that's a, uh, a fundamental flaw. And I'm, I'm curious to know what kind of feedback have you gotten from listeners? One of the pieces of feedback that I that that does trouble me that I've heard is is that it's it's it's, it's how hard of a listen it is, you know, because uh, I, as a journalist, I don't want to lead people down dark alleys, you know, I want uh, to lead people to a place of I can fix this, I can what is my role, what is my accountability in this, and but it's also that's true, it's a really dark alley, <laughs> like it's a, it's a tough story. Did you have a lot of discussions also about how many details to disclose? Can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those discussions or arguments you had? Yes, we had a lot of conversations about that. Um, I think it was important, especially in something like Honor's story, which was the way we got access to his story was through, it was sort of a, it was a kind of alternative to incarceration program that he had gotten sort of funneled into. So he didn't end up serving any time. He had, he had to commit to a certain amount of this therapy and then we were given access to recording that process. So given that we're looking at, you know, this is this alternative to incarceration, I think it was really important then to say, well, well, what was it that he did that would have made some people think that he should be incarcerated? There was tape we did not use, but we needed people to really understand the violence of that, you know, he stabbed his sister and people needed to understand what that meant. We're setting aside a debate about guilt or innocence. This isn't a debate about whether people committed crimes or not. So part of it was we didn't want to get into that. The point is, what do we do now that this has happened when we're dealing with children? So these are kids who are, some of whom have been caught in a snowball of bad circumstances, bad luck. They've been implicated in these crimes. And it sounds like a lot of the interactions they've had with authority figures have not been positive ones. How, for the benefit of students in the room, how do you go about developing trust with that kind of a source? especially when they're asked to share such sensitive information with potentially huge impact on their lives. We decided to work with certain reporters because we also thought that those were people who could build that trust and had a track record of doing that. So I'm thinking of Cindy Rodriguez who reported on a young woman who was in the system. She just decided I'm gonna go spend some time um, at court and just kind of see who I can meet. And then she met this young woman's lawyer. And so it was through that introduction, I think, that um, she was able to kind of initially trust Cindy. But then there was a lot of just like, you know, going and getting coffee and, um, you know, not necessarily going on tape, but just checking in and, you know, taking her out for a, you know, a lunch, or, you know, kind of over time sort of building a real a real relationship um, and it's I mean the take home there is time spent you know I mean it's there's no secret sauce here so to use Cindy Rodriguez example I mean she had been she's been covering this system child welfare system for what 15 years <laughs> you know um, you can't parachute into the relationships to me there are a couple of things that are just always true one pe people are very rarely asked <laughs> and you be, and people are actually quite happy to sh share with you if you are genuinely asking, you know, I mean, to somebody to sit down with you and say, something terrible happened to you and I want to hear you tell me, I'm willing to listen, you know. 
And you're not there to get a quote, and you're not there to get your thing and to move on, and you sit with them, and you come back, um, and you show that you actually care. Um, and then lastly, like if you share something of yourself, you're dealing with a human being. And so you can't be the like, well, I'm here to get your story and I'm objective and you just, I got you have to be like, okay, I'm a human too. You know, that when you said that, that made me feel this. You have to be, share, you know. What's your responsibility as a journalist when the story is done? There's no real easy answer to that. Every journalist I know deals with that differently, you know. Um, I walk, personally walk a fine line with it, you know, um, because part of the truth of our work is that it is exploitive. One of the reasons people are sharing with us is they believe that I can help them. I might be able to help the next person by telling their story, but nine and a half times 10, I can do nothing for them specifically. And I do everything I can to be clear about that and encourage people to think of themselves as whistleblowers even if they're telling their personal story about something that is not what we would traditionally think of as whistleblowing. That's the relationship I try to develop with people. And so I do try to walk that relationship back at the end because I don't want to create the impression that, I, that you can turn to me for help because I, I can't help. Um, what's next? Is there a follow-up? <laughs> Uh, well, so the stakes, uh, which we are uh, on episode two of, um, uh, is our new show. Uh, it is subscribe. <laughs> please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rated if is you're there listening. Hashtag, the hashtag. hashtag the, the stakes. stakes. <laughs> uh, the stakespodcast.org. Um, and you know what the stakes is? Is we have been over the last three or four years making series like Caught. We made Caught. Before that, we made uh, a series called The United States of Anxiety that was really sort of a an effort to be sociological about our political moment um, growing out of the 2016 race. Like, what is actually going on in our society that leads to this moment? You know, if you listen to this and you like, think, oh, that's great. The system works right. Then fine. You know, but uh, uh, if you don't. How do, we, how do we move past just feeling empathetic and move into, okay, this, this was built in part to serve me, and so how do I make it different? So we're figuring it out as we go. <laughs>
okay, we want the Roots audience is a place we want to have this conversation with. And so let's commission a series of essays that are going to go in the Root. And that may or may not lead people to click back to the podcast. That's not the point. The point is that like we did this reporting and it got out. We did a series of shows for the air. We know pretty clearly that our radio audience and our podcast audience are two totally different audiences, that putting something on the radio does not lead to people listening to the podcast. I think, you know, when you're dealing with kids is always like a whole bigger kettle of worms. But you're dancing on this line of you need them, you need their access, you need them to tell these really tough stories. But on the other hand, they're kids. But like what considerations do you have about um, how well they understand what talking to you is going to mean for them? It's a great Great question, and one we often think about with Radio Rookies because they often do tell incredibly personal stories. Um, I mean, first of all, we used either nicknames or pseudonyms because, you know, luckily they are juveniles and almost all of them, their records will be in some capacity wiped clean, and so the last thing we want is for them to be 25 applying for a job and have this be the first thing that comes up, bless you. And um, we did that regardless of yeah, what they wanted. What, oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, but in terms of understanding what it means, I think um, we definitely would at times play them stories so that it would at least know what the form is. But being able to understand this is the audience it will connect to, I mean, you can we say it, but I don't know how much that always penetrates. I think having people visit the station, if that was possible, also usually helps because you walk in and it's, you know, feels like a radio station. It's a real thing. It's not just me with my little equipment. I do actually explicitly sit people down and say, let's be clear, the outcome of this is unlikely to be that I'm going to fix the situation you're in. Like, I do have that conversation. It, 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 that we, this work, it, it, I, I often say this, you know, the work we do, there is just as journalists, like on some level, is exploitive. Um, and, and that's why then, and I make that point, because that is why then we have an ethical standard to not just be trying to entertain people. That is why it is not sufficient. It cannot be that I have asked you to do this just so that I can get an emotional response from somebody that they're going to have a tell they're going to get a have a good fun story told that that is to me horrific because I am I I'm, there's no way around the fact that I'm exploiting people and so there has to be an actual meaningful reason why I'm doing it I've been doing some reporting within you know child welfare system and when you go to caseworkers or different people who are in charge but stuck in a bureaucracy is that something that you had to deal with where you had very nice caseworkers or heads of agencies that were willing to help you but then you know that you just had to go through all of these levels of like getting permission from this person and this person uh, it didn't happen so much in this that I know of. It happens routinely. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just part of... I mean, it did in terms of getting access to the close-to-home facility. Right, it, right. it was a lot of work to get all... I mean, I remember multiple, many people involved conference calls with different ACS people, and so it was just sort of chipping away and kind of building trust with them. And, of course, then that was quickly shattered. But it did get us in there for a spell, so it was worth it. Um, but, yeah, we've encountered that a ton with rookies because... There have been times where there are things we want to record and, you know, and it's interesting because 
young people actually do have a right to say they want to be interviewed. And a lot of times places like the Department of Ed or other places want to kind of insert that, that they can't consent to that, but actually, I don't know exactly at what age that changes, but teenagers are not, um, they're allowed to say that they want to speak to a reporter. And did you have any stipulations from w WNYC, like a certain time limit, like fit a certain mold within it, or you, they kind of gave you free reign? We had a fair amount of flexibility in terms of length, I would say. Um, I don't, I mean, if it had gone really long. I, I mean, we were, the, we, yeah, were we, the were, we were the deciders. We were the deciders there. Yeah, there wasn't, but there has been a shift now in the stakes to think of things in us, in, you know, to go shorter. Yeah, I mean, there, as the... We went a little crazy, I think, in terms of like... Well, certainly U.S. anxiety, we went a little crazy, you know? Um, but but if, and it's not good, you know? Like, it no, just, that was dread. not a brag. That was this, a, we're that more was a editorial, cell phone. Yeah, like, we're more editorially driven by like, ah, that's too long, and we're being lazy, and we're tired, and so we've stopped editing, and we need to keep editing. Um, there is, you know, we get now on the stakes, we are getting more... Um, I wouldn't, not by any means requirements, but advice from the data teams who have spun out many shows saying, well, here's what we can tell you works and what doesn't work, you know, and one of the things is clear about length being in the 25-minute realm uh, is what people listen to and um, which, you know, not coincidentally is the length of most people's commute. And um, so we're trying to hit that, but nobody's telling us we have to, you know. Um, we just, we want listeners, so. I'm just curious about um, solutions journalism. Did you think about that in the reporting? Like, solutions journalism is the rage. Should we incorporate, you know, an action item for our audience? We did think you did. That. So on the stakes, we are very actively thinking about how we have uh, a solutions-focused frame on this, trying to frame the stories around th there are people working on this who are trying to fix it, you know. Um, we talked about that a lot on this, and it was hard. It was hard because the solutions aren't clear. You know? I mean, part of the challenge is that we'd say, we were saying, the juvenile justice system. No, there are systems. Even when we would call the Vera Institute in these different places and say, how would you, they'd say, are you kidding me? You know, these are, there are hundreds of different systems that you're looking at, and each of them have very different sets of standards. Right. We are not going to get to a solution on this as long as the people who we have decided are criminals, we're not thinking about them and they're off in the corner and the rest of us are figuring out what the solution is, you know. And so part of the built-in solutions in this series is saying let's hear from the people who are experiencing this so that we can actually, we can accurately define the problem, you know. Um, and then the other, you know, part of what we're thinking about in the stakes with this is, so for instance, the episode we're going to put out on Tuesday um, is uh, a look at maternal racial disparity and maternal mortality, which is something that, like, we had a big splash on about a year ago. Serena Williams came out. People won a Pulitzer for reporting on the problem. Problem was identified, and everybody moved on, you know. And so this episode is, well, wait a minute. Here, let's talk to some black women who are living this. And how are they individually trying to live through this now that they have this information? And what are hospitals doing? What are care providers doing? So part of the solutions focus that we'll have in the stakes is to like not move on, you know, not move on from things just because we've identified the problem. Now onto the next problem. Thank you again. Thank you guys. Yeah.
Thanks again to Kai, Kari, and Sally for that in-depth conversation. It is such a tough but important and powerful topic, and I loved hearing more about how our winners think and do their award-winning work, right? Right, and more about the inspiring work itself. If that doesn't motivate you to enter our 2020 DuPont, well, you should, again, go to DuPont.org, and you'll see all of this year's winners and get lots of information. So the deadline is coming up. It's your last chance. That's right, July 1st. We have been getting more and more podcasts in recent years, but of course, plenty of other work is eligible for the Silver Baton, right, Lisa? That's right. As long as it's got substantive audio or video and original reporting, and of course, it's outstanding work, and it premiered before an audience between July 1st, 2018, and June 30th of this year, it's eligible. So that means radio, podcasts, broadcasts, cable, online, and documentary journalism, too. That's right. And if you're a print outlet that's gone online and you've produced great work and it has substantial audio and video in it, you qualify. You just have to make the deadline. So now that we have emphasized that again, (laughs) let's (laughs) pivot and just say that next month on assignment is going to be taking a well-deserved summer break. So there will not be an August edition of the podcast, but we will be back at the beginning of September with our 50th episode. Hard to believe. That's right. It's very exciting. We're working on something special for that to mark this momentous occasion. Indeed. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. Our producer is J-School grad Sarah Wyman with the support of our lovely and talented prizes coordinator and On Assignment coordinating producer, that's a pretty long title, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our sound engineer today was Ariana Sullivan, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. See you in September. Just like the song says. Like the song. Check out Frankie Valley. While you're away, don't forget to write.